thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're doing. I pray that you'd anoint my, my words, my, my mind. It just anoint everyone here. Let, open their hearts, open their, their ears to you, open their eyes to what you're doing. Open my eyes, Lord. Help us to see, help us to, to not rely on our own plans, our own vision, our own longings, but actually to trust you. To see what you are doing, Lord. Amen. Anyone other than Warren brave enough to admit to like being addicted to anything? What are you addicted to now? Coffee. <laughs> Ice cream. Ice cream. Sugar. Oof. Sugar. So, has anybody here been frustrated? You, you like working for a boss and it feels like they're a slave driver. It's like, you ever felt like you're actually a slave to something? You are enslaved to something. Hopefully by the end of today, I'm going to convince all of you to actually be ready to say yes to that. Um, because the reality, there's slavery locked up in all of us. Um, and there's almost the whole journey of God is showing us how to find freedom, how to find true freedom. And everybody asks me, it's like, hey, what are you, you ready for this morning? I'm like, wow, well, I think I'm ready to, this is probably one of my last like preachers or my last preach for the year, other than maybe Christmas. Um, so I hope you're comfortable because I've got a lot and... Part of it is, I want to just show you a few slides that's quite cool of hopefully giving you a little bit of a picture of the, the background to the scripture that I'm going to share. So, what's that? Hmm. Okay, so it's just John 7 and John 8. Because we, we went through Matthew 6, 7, uh, 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And then Quibbus kept asking me, so what's next? I'm like, well, Matthew 8. And so the whole thing is, it's like, okay, what, what's the next step? What's the next step for us? What's the next step for Trinity Central? What's the next step for each and every one of you? And I think God does have a next step for us. And so we're going to actually look, and God confirmed it last week when Jan was preaching, just on the number 8. And this is probably going to just be a bit of an introduction as to why I want to do that. And so part of it we're going to look at is John 8. And then sometime in the new year, we're going to look at a bunch of the chapters, chapter 8 of the Bible. And it's like either my stupidity or God's genius, because I've never seen a sermon series that's centered around like random chapters of the Bible. But hopefully it's going to give us a picture of what God is doing. And we're going to look at just what, what is the theme highlighted in, in these different chapters and Maybe they connect, maybe they don't. Maybe we'll see what, what the next step is. But there's something in, the, in the, the number eight. Because God, when he set up the world and he created the world, he, he set it up with seven days. And eight is the first day of the new week. Eight is the number of like a new start, of a fresh start. It's, the foundation has been set. So what's next? It's a new day. It's like it's a new dawn. It's a new life. Sorry. Um, sorry. That's... I think in like lyrics and music lyrics and song lyrics and um, yeah. So I'm going to read from John 7, 
just to give us a, a bit of background to, to where Jesus is when he speaks in John 8. So it starts off, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth, booths was at hand. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Succoth. And hopefully it's not a feast at Succoth. But, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And I think Jesus is saying that to us. Your time is always here. It's like, there's no such thing as actually waiting. No, my time has not yet come now. It's like, there's something of the present reality when God speaks to us of saying, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you. Today is the day, like the start of your transformation. Today is the day where actually that life, you, you think one day I'll start living. Today's the day to start that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the whole thing is his brothers don't even believe in him. Like we look around the world now, a lot of people, a lot of the conversations I've been having, it's like, hey, what's wrong with the world? It's like, no, people are the problem. How would you fix it? Ah, kind of get rid of people. And it's like, they don't realize that actually people are the beauty of this world and God wants to come and fix it. But he doesn't want to, he doesn't come as like this dominant king that's saying, I'm going to force you to do this. He comes privately. And he comes almost in secret and he comes in a way that it takes faith to actually see what he's doing and to, to trust him and to believe. So the whole thing is how do we transform the world? We transform the world by our example and inviting them in and then patiently actually loving. And part of this is this feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths. And we need to understand this feast. That's actually why I've got this up here. So the feast of booths would be where all of the like Israelites would come together and it's like it's insane this I've got to get these notes just to cover it properly feast of booths is almost like there's a part of it where it reminds me of like the 12 days of Christmas except in the 12 days of Christmas you've got hey I'm going to give you this and I'm going to give you that and you get the ring and the what's it a partridge and a pear tree and so you, you're counting down to Christmas and you're counting up the amount of gifts you're going to give. What the Israelites did in the Feast of Booths, they would have seven days leading up to this feast. And they would slaughter 13 goats on the, or bulls on the first day. And then 12 on the second day. And then 11. And they would, they would have this like countdown to this amazing like celebration. And we've lost sight of these festivals. We got holidays which actually comes from holy days. So we've taken like what should be incredibly holy and we take it to be this individual thing where like, okay, we just need rest. This is an agrarian culture where it's like they would be farming day in, day out. You don't get a break. And then God steps in and says, actually, if you trust me and you be my people, I'm going to give you one break every single week. That was like unheard of. 
And then he says, like, actually, when you're a people, I'm going to give you days off where you're going to get together and relax and celebrate what I have done for you. And the Feast of Tabernacles, they would literally, they would leave their houses and go camping. I know some of you, that doesn't feel like a, a holiday, but there's, there's, there's something about leaving our normal routine and getting out of our comfort zone and realizing that actually God protected us. The whole thing is a reminder of when Jesus or when God set them free from Egypt, from slavery. So they set them free and then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So the whole thing is they set up these booths to remind them that actually, even when we were out of a permanent home, God looked after us and he cared for us and he protected us. So it's like there's seven days of camping. But this is not seven days of camping with just you and your family, where it's like, I just need to get away from people for a little bit. This is the entire nation getting away and taking a break together. And it's like, actually, we all come and descend on Jerusalem to go and have this feast and a festival together to remember what God did. So this is like almost New Year's wrapped up with our December holiday, wrapped up with like the anticipation for Christmas and like remembering what God made us and how he made us a people, how he set us free from slavery, how he looked after us in the desert, how he provided water for us. And so because of that, they had like these ceremonies that were built up around it, where every single day, anyway, so they would get together in the temple, actually talks about Jesus later on. He's, he's talking and he's actually speaking here in this courtyard because it's like it's the woman's courtyard. Anyway, so the whole idea is like you've got the Holy of Holies, you've got the place where only the men could go, only the women could go there, but then Gentiles were all on the way on the outside. So that's probably where all of us were. So technically we would be excluded from the people of God, the presence of God. I wanted to just get an idea of like the size of the temple. You see here, that's a football field. So basically three football fields could fit in just that section over there. And then that just fits into that tiny spot there. This is like 500 meters long, about 300 meters wide. It is huge. There is space for like everybody. And then every single day, they would walk from the temple, which is over that side here, down to the pool, which is over here, the pool of Siloam, and they would collect water. And then they would come back and they would pour this water out. And they would pour water and wine out together every single day. There's actually guys that go and they reenact this now when they celebrate it, and they're blowing trumpets. And there's this whole procession. And it's like the whole kilometer where they're walking and they're anticipating and they're remembering the water because they're remembering the times where they were walking in the desert and they ran out of water and they couldn't find water and God provided miraculously water from the rock. And then they remember again when actually when they get to water and the water is bitter and it's like they, they test God and they're trusting Him and they're wrestling with Him. So all of this is it's like this reenactment and every year we get to celebrate as a people what God has done for us. And it's a reminder and a reminder and a reminder and a reminder that actually when we go through tough times, God can provide for us and He can provide for us and He can provide for us. Amen. So this whole like feast is a, like a reminder of the journey from slavery to freedom. But actually the freedom 
is like they're freed from Egypt, and then they've got this whole wilderness wandering to remind them that the freedom needs to come internally as well. Because what happens when the challenges come? They want to go back to Egypt because that's where it's safe. That's where they knew what it would be like. It's like stepping out to go and start a new church or plant a church. It's like, hey man, this is exciting. And then, hey, but it's tough. It's not quite as comfortable as what it used to be back in that like, bigger, comfortable church. It's like, maybe, maybe we should go back there because like, there, there's, maybe there's that temptation. Anyway, um, not saying anything. But they would, so they would have this water like celebration. You can look for it in your Bible, it's not there. Because it was something, it was a practice that kind of got built up. It's in the Mishnah that they talk about, like, actually, this is how the Jews used to celebrate. And then there was another thing that they would do. They would actually light these incredibly huge, like, menorah. That's, they would build these things. That it would be, it would take, like, ladders for them to actually go and light the thing. Where they set up these major, like, menorah. The one guy says they're 75 feet high. That when they would light these, there was enough light for all of Jerusalem to actually see and the whole thing was to remind them of what God did on this journey of setting them free from Egypt. Because in, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He provided for them manna and water. In John 7, he says, come to me and drink. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And all of this festival was designed to remind them of this and to remind them of this and to remind them of this. So about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You ever think about that? Jesus never studied other than just probably the basic Jewish schooling. But then through his relationship with God, he had this authority and this understanding. And we look at it and it's like, wow, yeah, because he was God. No, Jesus was a man. And he learned the same way we do. And has the same access to God that we actually have. The reason why I can say that confidently is because the disciples were also, aren't these the unschooled fishermen? And yet they marveled at their teaching. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. You can actually be with Jesus to the point where he can, he can shape your mind and understanding and give you wisdom far beyond your level of education, far beyond what you think you are capable of. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. It's not your level of understanding. It's not your level of learning that opens you up to this. It's your heart. It's your willingness to actually do God's will. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given, us, given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures, um, as the scripture has said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You think about every single day they're having this procession. For a kilometer together they're walking and finding water. And they're going and they're getting the water. And then they're pouring out the water. And they're going and getting the water. And they're pouring out the water. And they're going and getting the water. And they're pouring out the water to remind them of what God did. And then in that moment, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. That's where he says, come to me and drink. Because I'm going to give you the spirit that's actually going to fill you and fuel you. And when you are lost and you don't know where to go, and when you're in times of trouble, when you're facing temptation, when you're facing hardship, when you are like wanting to grumble to God and say, get me out of here, get me back to where safe, help me, I don't know what to do, help me, I'm sick again, help me, I'm struggling, help me, I don't know where to go, you can actually go to God and come and drink. And then in John 8, he says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but, I, but will have the light of life. So this, this whole procession is set around the water coming and being poured out. And on the last day, they would light these candles, basically, that light up the whole of Jerusalem. And they'd let them shine the whole of the night. And how they ended the festival was actually when the sun would come up and they would turn and they would basically declare their allegiance to God again. Of saying, we will look to you. Almost that scripture that I quoted at prayer, it's like we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If you're lost, if you don't know where to go, if you're stuck in a wilderness, you've got God that's actually saying, I'm going to lead you as a pillar of light. This whole thing is the feast of Succoth. Succoth is where the Israelites camped after they came out of Egypt and they were stuck at the Red Sea. So they had been freed from Egypt by taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And then they were stuck at the water. And God came and he blocked them from the Egyptians with a pillar of cloud and fire. Because it's this cloud that suddenly gives light to everything. It's a pillar of cloud and light. And when Jesus or when God led them through the Red Sea, through the water, and as he miraculously provided water for them, it doesn't matter how hard it got, he was leading them and guiding them as a cloud by day to shelter them from the heat of the desert sun and as a, like a light at night to lead them and guide them in the darkness in their wanderings for 40 years, he led them. Sure. And that they remember this year upon year upon year upon year, day upon day upon day. Jesus stands up and says again, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. 
These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. That's where it says, it's like he was at the treasury. The treasury was found in the court of the woman. So it's like that's where we know, how we know exactly where Jesus was standing when he actually said this. For no one arrested him, but his hour, for his hour had not yet come. I'm going to skip down to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We love quoting that. Ah, the truth will set you free. But it's actually, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They've just spent seven days remembering how they were set free from slavery. And they're like, oh, we've never been slaves to anyone. It's literally your foundation story as the people of God was your freedom from slavery to Egypt. And then stuck in 40 years of wilderness because your slavery in your heart. And yet, I think we do the same. It's like, hey, are you free? Yeah, I'm completely free. How's that addiction going? How are those struggles going? Are you fully living as the people you know you're supposed to be? The people you want to be? The people God has made you to be? I'm like, no. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. We called Trinity Central for a reason, because we want to have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in absolutely everything that we do. I want you guys to live completely free. But the problem is that sin hides in us. And when I say, it's like, hey, what's the sin that you're struggling with? You're going to think of the easy, obvious things. It's like, yes, I want to really struggle with that. And I was thinking, it's like, what are the seven deadly sins? It's like, might not be the, the, the most accurate way of looking at it, but it's, it's, it, it hits some of the, the big ones. Like, there's lust and gluttony and sloth and wrath. It's like, are you struggling with lust? God can set you free. Are you struggling with laziness, sloth? You're not actually getting to what you should. Procrastination. It's like, actually, maybe one day I'll be that person that I should be. Like, gluttony. It's like, are you, your desires uncontrolled for caffeine or ice cream? Or No, it's like, it's not. Anyway, those are the obvious things. And for me, those aren't even the major things. Like they, they are part of it. But God wants to set you free. He has set you free from it. But then there's the ones that hide from us. Where it's actually it's the acceptable ones of our culture. Where it's our 
individual freedom and it's our longing to be completely free from other people and our independence and it's like actually I just need some me time like those are those are the, the, the more subtle ones because it's no but like oh, you got you gotta love yourself perfectly first before you can actually love everybody else and you need to look after yourself it's like actually you need to get completely financially stable before you actually start risking and helping other people Hey, the best example of generosity I have seen is from people that are in the most desperate situations. Some of them are sitting in this room. And then you get the ones, the sins that are really hiding, where it's our idolatry. And I was thinking, like, what, are, what is the, the stories of freedom that we want? And you've got Abraham, who's... When he, when he was first like called, he was a coward. He was sitting in his father's home where he was, what, I think he was 50 years old or something. And God calls him onto an adventure. And then repeatedly he gets put into a pressurized situation. And he's like lies about his wife. Actually, he's his sister. And it's actually God calls him out of that cowardice to courage. To go and take possession of a land that wasn't his own. He sets him free from his like life into a far bigger world. But then there's the expectation that he had and the disappointment that he must have felt where it's like, God has promised me I'm going to be the father of many nations and I don't even have a son. And then when he does give me a son, he tests me in that. And that's just Abraham, like that freedom that he has. And Joseph, what he went through, being betrayed by his brothers, the unforgiveness that was there, but it's a story of freedom because after year after year after year of him wrestling with us, he comes to the point where it's actually you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And it's a story of freedom from that unforgiveness. You struggling to forgive somebody? God wants to set you free from that. I think of Jacob where his name is literally like a wrestler. He wants to wrestle to get a good life for himself. I'm going to prove to everybody that I am worth it. I'm going to find something and I'm going to make sure that everybody respects me because I can fight harder than anybody and I can wangle a deal. And he has to be set free from that desire to prove himself, to actually be somebody who wrestles with God. And his wives, Rachel and Leah, are the one wants to have this perfect picture of, like, I'm a great mother. And by having kids and giving my husband the, the kids that he wants, it's like, I'm going to prove to the world how valuable I am by the mother that I am. And she has to be set free from that idolatry. And then Rachel, it's like, I just want my husband to love me. And like, or Leah actually, so she is a mother, but she wants to be loved by her husband. And she's overlooked because she's not as beautiful as her sister. And she has to be set free from that longing to be loved by somebody else. But it's tough. But it's that freedom that needs to come into each and every one of us. Samson, incredibly powerful, strong guy that falls morally. But he has to be set free from that failure. To actually say, you know what God, one more time, I can work for you. One more time, I can actually accomplish something for you. 
And that's what we remember him for. David, the freedom of being overlooked. It's like, or he has to be set free because his brothers are these big, like stronger than him. they all his older brothers and he's the one that's completely overlooked. And he actually gets set free from that. But then he falls morally again and he has to be set free from that like sin that was corrupting him and this, like his entire nation. He has to be set free again to walk in the fullness of what God had made him to be. Jonah was a prophet that was called to go and preach to people that he hated. He had to be set free from his racism and prejudice. How many people in South Africa still need to be set free from that? We like to think that, hey, we're the new South Africa. There is like a spirit of racism that is capturing the world and is twisting our perspectives like never before. Or, or like it's always tried to. But it's coming in in a way that we haven't seen before. So we think it's okay. It's justified. Ah, I'm not racist, but they corrupt. Or I'm not racist, but they this. Ah. God wants to set us free from what's corrupting our hearts and our lives. Lastly, Daniel and his friends. They were challenged and said, like, actually, if you just compromise here, then you can be fine with the world and you can be fine and you can be, be in with everybody else. But they were set free from that compromise. Not to be the guys that actually stood up and opposed and oppressed everybody. But in the, the pressure, they were able to say, you know what? We believe our God can save us. We believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're going to praise him and we're going to remain faithful. And that's the courage that God is asking us to have. That's the faith that He's asking us to have. But to do that, we need to learn to abide. He says, if you abide in my word, then you'll be truly my disciples. That abide in my word is not just like, hey, I'm going to stay in in the Bible. Jesus' word is his message. It is his message that actually I am the only way. Only when you realize that you are broken and sinful apart from Christ. Only when you realize what's corrupting the world is not those bad people and us good people need to come and fix it. Only when you realize that it is the sin inside of each and every one of us that is a part of the corruption in the world. We, can we be transformed? Because then it's the grace of God that saturates our lives. And it's like that abiding in His Word is abiding in that message. Letting that shape your identity down to the core of who you are. Then your default response is one of grace. Because you learn to respond to the brokenness in the world in the same way Jesus does. Where you love the sinner but you hate the sin. And you winsomely know how to address it. You don't go in and say, we're wrong. You actually come in and say, like, hey, let me show you a better way. Let me put an example in front of you and invite you into a transformed life. 
And then if we look at this where it starts with the Holy of Holies, there's like just the perfection of who God is. It needs to overflow into the people of God. And then into the, like the court of the woman. And then into the court of the Gentiles. If you see, when Jesus came, he was already, like he was already tearing that like curtain in two. And he was already starting to reach out to the people of God and to the woman. Because that's where he is preaching. And the whole thing is, it's actually, he wants to do the same with us. He wants, he wants to start in your heart and show you what you were made for. So that you can be completely free. So that that can overflow to your wife. And to your family. And to your community. And us as a church, we can actually start to live in that way. So then that overflows into the world around us. Because of that, we've got a safe place that we can actually come to. Because of that, we can be set free in our personal lives. Because of that, we can start being set free in those things that hide from us. And we can learn to take correction. I was tempted to start this morning by actually asking, so who, whoever challenges you? Who has the right to challenge you? Who has the right to correct you? When you're sitting in church, when you're sitting in a conversation, it's like, yeah, they just don't understand. I was confronted in that in prayer, like, man, so easily my opinion is right. And actually, I just need to show everybody else. But is, does God ever, is He allowed to correct you? Or do you just brush over the verses that seem challenging? We have to have a God that can challenge us. And a church that can challenge us. And friends that can challenge us. And a practical way of doing that is actually just saying, you know what, there's some people in my life where I value their opinion sometimes more than my own. If my wife says something to me where she really like, feels is right, I have to trust her opinion sometimes above my own. Just because I, I trust her intuition. I trust her perception of God and that situation. And I need to go and like, rethink what I am thinking. When I'm reading scripture and there's something that jumps out at me, it's like I have to trust God's word over my opinion. Hopefully that's the same here at church when Quibus or Tristan is preaching and they say something I disagree with. I'm like, wow, maybe I need to go and check that first. I mean, the Bereans had that, that, they're famous for being a church that actually took what was preached and tested it against the word to say, God, show me what you are really saying. You don't need this fancy theological degree, but you do need a willingness to trust God so that he will teach you. The reason we do all of this is because I want you to be free. God sets the Israelites free. Not because He wants to show off. He wants to show them that this is who I am. I am a God who cares. I am your Father. Jesus came to show us the Father. He came to show us what God was like. And to do that, He uses the blood of the Lamb. To set them free from Egypt. And he uses the tests and the trials and the hardships of the wilderness to show them that I am the God that can provide water in the wilderness. I am the God that can give you bread where there is nothing. I am the God that can miraculously provide for you. Trust me. 
I am the God that can actually transform your heart and your life because I want to give you a promised land. I want to give you this incredible destination. But you have to be ready for it. Your heart has to be transformed. You as a people have to be transformed. And I can't help but think this is like there's this picture where day upon day they would pour out water and wine. Day upon day they would pour out water and wine. And water and wine. I, and the amazing thing is this was just like a culture, like a, a, a cultural like add-on that the people came up with. Because I think they were tapping into just the picture of what God did. It was a hundred years before Jesus came. One of the, the priests was like, ah, oh, this isn't in the Bible. I'm going to stop this. And the people threatened his life to the point where it's like, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll do this. And the reason why is because when Jesus died, they pierced his side and what flowed out was water and blood. And I'm like, oh God, you are a genius. That even in these practices that I think were built up, it showed us who you are. To have this at the center of our remembrance, that freedom only comes through Jesus. Only comes through his death. That that sets us free and gives us salvation. And then he gives us the water, which is the spirit, to transform us and to empower us to live differently to live radically free lives that displays the father to the world that's why we do communion every single week here not because it's something we have to do not because it's just a clever idea of how to wrap up a meeting or it's because this is what sets us free this is what we orientate our lives around. Every single week we're going to have this celebration and a ceremony that what orientates our lives is the body and the blood of Jesus. We're going to remember that we are set free by the blood of Jesus. We are transformed by the washing of the water. We are empowered by the Spirit. As you take the body and the blood. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Abide in my word and you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Lord, help us as a church to take the next steps. Help us to, to be people that are truly your disciples. Because we want to abide in this message, in the truth of who you are. In the truth of what you have done for us. Help us to know your word. Help us to know who you are, help us to, to learn. We are just simple men and women, almost unschooled, 
we, we, we do our best to understand who you are, but I pray that you would show us who we are meant to be, who you have made us to be. Show us the freedom that we get to live in. Lord, we come to you and we want to drink from you. We want to live upon you. You are the bread of life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the picture that you are of the Father. Thank you that. Thank you for the community that you're building here, Lord. Your church. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. Thank you for the freedom that you give us, Lord. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to learn how to come to you, learn how to live free. To be set free from the sin that so easily entangles us. But we are set free to pursue you. To pursue a life of adventure. A life of freedom. A life of creativity. A life of love. Lord, help us to live in the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, Lord. Help us to live transformed lives. Jesus name. Amen. I think God's asking us to take next the next steps. And he's, there's an open door for each and every one of you to to truly be a disciple. And to truly be a disciple means you follow Jesus. Yeah. Not a disciple of me, not a disciple of Warren. You know, we will learn and we're going to grow together and we will love each other and we will help each other grow together. And, but it takes reaching out. It takes challenging each other. It takes being open to correction. It takes all of that. It takes those bumps and bruises and those hardships and those challenges. And we're going to have to learn to forgive and to forgive, and to forgive, and to forgive again, and because life is messy, and challenges come along the way, and most of those challenges come through the people that we love the most, and, but as we do that, we will be set free, and we are going to create, God is creating a church that is going to bring more and more freedom for those that we love, for those around us, and we will play our small part in the church in Pretoria, in the church in the world. Because this is the way that God planned to change the world. Through the private transformation of hearts. Through the strange church in a little lounge in Pretoria. And it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know that God is busy. Oh, Lord, I thank you for what you are doing. I thank you for hearts and lives and minds that are being transformed. I thank you that you are showing us the next step that each person needs to take.